are working our way through the book of Hebrews. We are approaching the last chapter. This is part 54. And the text is Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. And the title is, Do Not Refuse Him Who Is Speaking. Do Not Refuse Him Who Is Speaking. Romans 12, starting at verse 25. Boy, I sure hope you bring your Bible to church in one form or another. Do not get to the place where you say, oh, it's going to be up on the screen anyway. I don't need... Like, you need your Bible. You need... You need Take notes. Do it in whatever, whatever program you're using on your smartphone or your iPad. You can take notes. Write things down. Be active. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, 1225. That obviously, there's the title of the sermon. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For, for if they... This is the children of Israel around Mount Sinai receiving the law through Moses. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we. So you can see what he's doing here. There's this we, they thing. It's going to unfold. We is, that's the audience to whom our writer wrote, and it's us to whom the Spirit speaks in the New Testament church. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So, so his concern is that we might think, well, grace, so we're, we're good. They certainly had to be afraid. Remember the Lord spoke, the mountain shook, there was fire, anything that touched the mountain had to be stoned and put to death. And, and so we look at it and go, whoa, I'm glad we're not in that boat. He says, if they didn't escape, much less will we, that's us, escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, he has promised, quote, yep, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This is quite a text. This phrase, yet once more, our writer says, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. All those beautiful pictures you saw on those slides while they were singing, the things that have been made. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been created, made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving, that's us, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, with this in mind, and gratitude, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then this verse that seems like it really ought to be in the Old Testament, not in the New. 
for our God, that's us, our God is a consuming fire. It's a great lesson in Bible study when you work through a letter like this and you see the the balance that's placed in the biblical text by the Spirit of God through these human authors. I mean, immediately after last Sunday morning, contrasting the fearful approach of God on the mountain with the giving of the commandments... And the contrast through the the entrance we have. You have not approached the mountain that can be touched. To the heavenly Jerusalem. And and, uh, the spirits of the just made perfect. And those enrolled in heaven. So after contrasting the approach through the law at Sinai. That was 18 through 21. Contrasting that with what we received through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. That's verse 24. So he's just painted this great difference. And we rejoice in it. But today, our writer seems concerned that his, his readers, as they see this contrast and see the difference, they, they might come to a false conclusion that it isn't quite as urgent to listen to God anymore because we have, we have been so lavishly showered with redeeming grace and mercy and pardon and love through the sprinkled blood, verse 24, of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. What could, what could possibly go wrong now that our worst transgressions have been completely removed? What was that a beautiful line in there? A hundred billion pardons or something in that. It, was, it, was, it just caught my attention. What could go wrong now that we've all been pardoned through lavish grace? I mean, surely God's love isn't in short supply. His mercies are new every morning. We should be fine. And that's what makes the flow of ideas the flow of the sentences in, in this text so illuminating. Maybe I can show you the contrast this way. Take the last sentence from last Sunday morning's text and link it up to the first of today's text. And you'll see this, 24. But you have come, I added those words because they're implied. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, it's Christ's blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's where we finished last week, period. And look, see see that. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So the, the 24, this wonderful, here's what we have through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. It just speaks a better word. And you want to go, oh, praise God. 25. Now, see that. 
And you, and you oh, wait a minute, he, he's not done. He's warning about something here. Forgive my repetition on a point, but I just finished another book. And there's so much ink spilled these days telling the church that the parts of the Old Testament citing God's wrath and judgment that they have no place in the church's understanding of God. They'll say, this is, uh, you know, Greg Boyd, Brian Zahn. The fog has finally lifted. We've seen God's love in Jesus. And so the mistakes of all those past misunderstandings of God, well, they've finally been corrected. Jesus has come, and we know God's true heart. He's, he's always embracing. He's always loving. He's never wrathful. He's never judging. But this doesn't, it doesn't seem to hold up when you work through the kind of text we've been working through. I mean, far from canceling out the revelations of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament, our writer repeatedly, he, he cites them and endorses them and he, he builds on them. And he does it repeatedly in this letter. Let me just give you some examples so you can see what I'm talking about. Here's chapter 2. We looked at these. 1 to 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. He does it again, same thing, in Hebrews chapter 10, 28 and 29. And he, he's doing the same thing, arguing from old to new. If anyone set aside the law of Moses, dies, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse do you think, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This isn't someone who was never sanctified. This is someone who was sanctified, but has outraged the spirit of grace. You see it again in our text this morning, 1225. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned from earth, much less will we escape. Okay, so I think you see my point. I could have shown you more. That's just three examples. And you can see, you can see the, the they-we contrast, can't you? It's repeated over and over again. If this was true for them, God judged. Then how much more for us? That's the argument. Every time. So far from uh, ignoring or canceling out those Old Testament judgments, our writer builds on them he repeats them he endorses them and their ongoing relevance and importance so this whole this whole it's got a lot of momentum this whole anti-wrath movement it's a house of cards believe me it's a house of cards it is blatantly untrue it is inconsistent with even a casual regard to the flow of revelation in the bible and that's why most most of its proponents 
and this is on record, so guys like Greg Boyd, Brian Zahn, Bruxy, go online, you don't need to take my word for it, they all deny the verbal inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. All of them. And that, that should surprise no one, because there's simply no other way to reach their theological conclusions. You've got to get the book out of the way. Are you, you all understanding what I'm saying? You've got to get the book out of the way, and then, of course, you can go anywhere you want with your logic and your, and your thinking. I have three or four thoughts. Sorry, point number one. This is the heart of it. Never, never give yourself an excuse for not obeying a speaking God. And it's right there. See that. You do not refuse him who is speaking. I want to just talk about that. For if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him. So reject here is the same as refuse. Doesn't mean you don't have to you don't have to doubt his existence or deny his existence or renounce any kind of uh, faith or religious commitment. It's just a matter of refusing to listen to him. That's what he's talking about here. There's not a creedal kind of rejection. It's a ignoring kind of rejection. Most of us, I think it's safe to say. Most of us don't think of the Christian walk as a response to um, someone who is speaking to us personally. I mean, we all, I know, you listen to testimonies, you read books, and everybody says, God told me, God told me, God told me. But, but rarely do we mean a, a voice. Someone who is speaking to us personally. And that's what makes that first sentence, it's striking and it's maybe a bit strange sounding to us. See that you not refuse him who is speaking. Notice, not was speaking, is. I messed it up, but you see it right there? Is speaking. And then the text goes on to describe, first that audible voice of God in the Hebrew language that they all heard on Mount Sinai. And the, the clear impression that our writer wants to leave us is we have no less a speaking voice today. But, but is that true? How many would honestly say that I actually heard a voice this past week? I think, I don't know about you, I get, I get frightened around people you hear about them in the news who talk about doing something because they heard voices telling. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to be in that crowd. But this is our Bible. And, and these are words directed to the New Testament church, to Christians like we. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And when I read that sentence, 
I immediately want to ask two questions of this text. I want to know who's speaking and how. That's question one. It's really two, but I put them together. Who is speaking and how? And then secondly, what does it mean to refuse him who is speaking? So A, who is speaking and how? And when this text is taken all together, it's not hard to identify the speaker on the mountain with Moses. God is the speaker, not just Moses. That's made clear, by the way. That's made clear by the fact that it is said of this speaking voice that at that time the whole, his voice shook the earth. See that in verse 26? At that time his voice shook the earth. That's not talking about Moses' voice. This is God. So that that part's easy. The tricky part of the text is the fact that it's the writer's clear intention to say that that same voice speaks to you and speaks to me, though not from any earthly location, but from heaven. Let me clean this up. You'll see it, you'll see it here where he says, if they did not escape when they refused him who warn them on earth. So that's, you could find the place on the mountain, geographically on a map. But there's another voice, he says, how will we escape if we reject him who warns, now it's from heaven. So the location of the voice is different. That much we can see, but, but our writer is adamant, just because the location is different, there is still a voice that speaks. So, if words mean anything, we know who speaks. It's God. It's, it's the how part. That gets tougher to get at. But maybe not really. We've actually seen the speaking of this voice already in this letter. And I remember drawing attention to it at the time. For example, look at Hebrews 3... 7 to 9. Here our writer, writing to these persecuted Hebrew believers, he writes and he's quoting the psalm, the words of David. But look what he says, Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Everyone reading those words knew those famous words from David. They sang it in their Psalter. Only our writer doesn't attribute the words to David. He attributes them to God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So our our writer, get this. Our writer has the nerve to say that those words, all of these words there. The actual syllables, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives. That they are spoken by God. Like that's, 
That's a stunning statement of scriptural veracity. These words aren't just, they aren't just written sentences. They're spoken words. The Holy Spirit says, and you, you, get, a, you get a picture of something coming out of the lips, not something written with the pen, don't you? The Holy Spirit says. Here's another one. I want you to see, because as more and more people belittle the inspiration of this book, I want you, at least this church, I want people to be able to say, you know what, that sure parts company with what the Bible says about itself. That's my goal here. Here's another example of that speaking voice. In your struggle against sin, 12, 4 to 6, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But have you forgotten the exhortation, and then he says, that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now those, all of these words right here, they're cited, they're a quotation, well known from the book of Proverbs. Only, only our writer doesn't treat those words like they're an ancient quotation from Solomon. So they aren't a reading in that sense. Our writer says these, these words that they were forgetting were, were addressing them. Please pause there for a minute. Our writer's really specific here. There is something he is saying in that text. Hebrews 12, 4 to 6. Is that still up there? Put that text back up there just for a sec. There there is something he is saying and there's something he isn't saying. He's not saying they've forgotten those words were in the book of Proverbs. Okay? Don't make that mistake. He's not saying they've forgotten those words were in the book of Proverbs. He's saying... You've forgotten those words are still addressing you. That's very different, isn't it? You, you've forgotten those words are, are, are talking to you. Those words from Proverbs are a speaking voice. They address you. And all you're seeing is stuff written in a scroll. Remember where we are. I know this is a bit involved. I said there were two questions that bubbled up out of verse 25. Remember? The first was, was who was speaking and how? And the second was how do we refuse? What, what's he mean when we refuse it? So that's, that's what I want to look at now. B, if God is still speaking to us, how do we refuse him? It's not quite the same as denying that he exists. What does does that refusal look like and how does it happen? How do I, how do I forget the voice addressing me behind the written words? 
Pastor Don, who cares? You know who, who cares? I think Jesus cared about this a great deal because he addresses this subject. Jesus was concerned. People who followed him years after he had ascended into heaven. You can't see him physically. He was concerned that years after he ascended into heaven, people would would no longer have the same urgency hearing his words. He addressed that issue very directly in Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. He's speaking to those who will go out now and share the word. These are people, Jesus will be gone. No one's going to see Jesus. He's not going to be walking on the water. He's not going to be feeding the 5,000. He's not going to be touching the blind people. He's not going to be making the lame walk. He's not going to be doing any of those things. He is gone, okay? Now, when he's there, you can see why his words would have such impact. Somebody comes and feeds 5,000 people with some loaves and fish. Somebody who approaches you in a boat walking on top of the water. When they open their mouth and address you, you tend to listen to them. Agreed? But he's gone. You don't see him doing any of those things. And he addresses his disciples who will go out with his message. And and he says this, Luke 10, 16. The one who hears, our text in Hebrews, refusing to hear, don't refuse to hear him who speaks, right? The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, they're going to go out and share. Here's what I know about Jesus. Peter will do it. James will do it. Luke will do it. And the one who refuses you, refuses, rejects me. And then he says, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me, who would be Father God. And so here's people, Jesus is gone, and they go out, and they've got what you've got. They've got what you've got. And they share it. And Jesus has the nerve to say, when they listen to you do this, they're they're hearing me. And if they reject you and what you're sharing, then they're rejecting me. And that matters, Jesus says, because if they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. There it is. That's how, from your New Testament, that's how churchgoers, like me, like you, religious people all across Canada, people just like Don Horbin, they can, if they're not very intentional, refuse him who is speaking. 1225. So, how quickly, how quickly we turn what we're doing right now. It's 1051, Sunday morning, June 3rd, right here in Newmarket. How quickly we turn what we're doing right now with God's word into something other than, something other than hearing God speaking to us. Hearing voice of God speaking to us. 
And our writer says, don't, don't, don't make the mistake of confusing, thinking, well, we're all covered by grace. We don't have to listen quite as carefully. Oh, church, terrible things happen when I turn my Christian life into a, a process, something religiously mechanical rather than hearing a voice speak to me. It's God. Fight the tendency to process your faith. There's something I I need to hear all over again in the bluntness of those words. Don, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I don't mean to be harsh. I hope it isn't coming across that way. But it is not, church, it is not a small word change. And it's very common. It is not a small word change when everything that goes wrong in my walk with Jesus becomes a failure or a weakness instead of a refusal. Do you see the difference in those words? Failures, failures are good intentions that didn't quite make it. Weaknesses are character flaws. Refusals are always willful. Refusals are relational. Refusals imply rebellion in a way that weakness or failure or hurt doesn't. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. I need to do a lot of relearning here. Surely, I'm like you, surely there are many different issues that crop up in my allegiance to Jesus. Okay? But whatever else goes well or poorly, whatever turns out to be easy or hard, I need, oh, oh, how I need over and over again to make sure I am never refusing him who speaks. That's where 90% of my problems are. Point number two. Apparently, God has future judgment for those who refuse gospel obedience to Jesus as Lord. Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. At that time, he's going to contrast two times. His voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now our writer from Hebrews says, that phrase, quote, yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Biblical record, just in case you're wondering about that, the biblical record is actually pretty clear that when God spoke on the mountain, it shook. Exodus 19:18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain, see that? That had to be quite an event. Israel never forgot that. 
Israel never forgot that. She worked it into the songs of her worship. Psalm 68. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah means pause, consider. The earth quaked. Heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the one of Israel. And so, years later, they're still singing about that event. They're still remembering it. But, but our writer only uses that event as a picture of something else quite terrifying that's still coming. He says in the last part of 27, but now he has promised he's going to do something again. That's what more means. I will shake not only the earth, the earth will be included, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. The things that have been made. That, that's, that's, that's stuff like, look at, look at your watch, look at your jewelry. Think about your car in the parking lot. Your pool, your cottage. All your investments, every cent you have tucked away anywhere at all. The things that have been made. God says it's all, it's all just going to be shaken and gone. Yet once more, the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may may remain. That quote, by the way, if you're interested, this part right there, it comes from an Old Testament prophet. You might have a hard time looking it up. You can use your cell phone. It'll be easier. Haggai, see how long it takes? Go! (laughs) The clue is go right to the back of your Old Testament. The quote comes largely from the prophet Haggai. Chapter 2, 6 and 7. And you can see the similarity. It's not verbatim, it's close to verbatim. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Let me just set up the context of what that's talking about. This is the prophet Haggai, anointed by the Lord, and he speaks to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And the occasion is the the dedication, the rededication of the rebuilt temple in 516 B.C., and Israel has been, been through the, the meat grinder. And they're there back in the temple. And so this prophet speaks to comfort the powers that be, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Not Joshua from the book of Joshua. Joshua the priest. And, and the promise is God will once again restore the throne of David. And he will reestablish the center as the worship of Israel, and nothing would stand in the way. So that's what the promise was about. The thing is, that's not what our writer does with the same text. He quotes those words 
in Hebrews 12, 26, and 27. And he takes those words and he, he pushes them even farther into the future. Just as God sovereignly judged all the nations opposing Israel, the shaking of the nations, in the same way, our writer of Hebrews says, he will yet again shake in judgment all those who refuse his speaking. And the rest of the New Testament confirms it. We're almost done. Second Peter. See if this sounds similar to what our writer in Hebrews is talking about. Peter says, but, but the day of the Lord will come. That's the theme. It'll come like a thief. Look at it. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So here's the question. If that's true, what sort of people should you be? It's a good question, isn't it? If that's true, where should you be investing your energy? What matters most, if that's true? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? I don't know what that's going to look like. Can't tell you. But how we need this reminder that there is... A day coming, a divinely appointed day when all who refuse him who is speaking. When that refusal is exposed and judged. When that refusal will never pass with another name. Well, I was distracted, I was I was busy, I, I you know, I was mistreated. I didn't feel people were, were nice to me. It's really hard being the only Christian, you know. So I didn't do what you wanted me to do. The refusal will just stand as a refusal. And all the things that looked like they had staying power, all the things that, that drew out my heart's love, idolatrous love, all the things that looked like they would last all the things that looked like they would bring security in my retirement, all the things that made it look like they had staying power for joy and happiness, all the things that looked like they might be able to provide alternate, permanent alternatives to my allegiance to Christ, they'll just be shaken away. They won't stand anymore, the writer says. Last point. Point number three. Be grateful. Be devoted. And be careful. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us do it with reverence and awe. And this would be the reason our God is a consuming 
fire. Will you just please notice this? Our writer of Hebrews, our New Testament writer, writing to a New Testament church, he proves by his example that it is the job of new covenant proclaimers to warn of God's wrath. It just happens all over the New Testament. It's the New Testament letter written to New Testament churches that has those words in 1225, see that you not you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused, much less will we escape. So judgment and wrath, there's certainly not the entire message, to be sure. They're certainly not the good news part of the gospel, but they are part of gospel proclamation. And, and if you leave it out, then the good news will never be seen as weighty and relevant. So... Here's my point. This line, our God is a consuming fire, apparently it belongs in a New Testament text. With all that in mind, our writer's last words, as he wraps up this chapter, in verse 28, it starts with that connecting word, therefore. Therefore, well, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You, you, you have something in Christ. Talk to people this morning as they came into the building. People with cancer. People with loved ones with cancer. People who are unemployed. You, you have something in Christ that can't be shaken. Your, your physical health can be shaken to death, literally. You can lose loved ones. You can face lack and need. You can go through large slices of life where you can't figure out why more things go wrong than go right. Your emotions can be shaken. But you have, you have in the kingdom of Christ a hope that cannot be, can't be shaken. It, it cannot be erased. It cannot be undone. It cannot be moved. And so the first thing he says is, you know what you do? You start with just saying, well, thank you. In this world, governments change. Policies change. Laws change. What's socially acceptable and unacceptable changes vastly. But this kingdom, it just stands solid, secure, firm, never changing. You should go home and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Secondly, I see here that, so the, the first motive for everything is thankfulness. This is, in fact, not just a kingdom, it is the only kingdom that cannot be shaken. The only one. Secondly, B, worship must be expressed. I love that word, That one. Let us, let us offer to God. It, it, it has this picture of, of give it up. Lifting. Offering. No one, 
I don't, it's not a fighting point with me. Never has been, never will be. No one will ever convince me. No one will ever convince me that it is not Old Testament and New Testament to lift holy hands in worship to God, to offer up praise and worship. Beyond the bounds of just merely sitting there thinking, well, isn't God good? Offer it. Offer it. See. Joyful New Covenant disciples Remember the ongoing need to pay serious attention to God. I like the way our writer includes himself when you look back at that 25th verse. The way he says, how much less will we? No one is sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. A lot of people think Paul did. A lot of people think Luke did. The truth is, nobody knows. But we do know this, that one of the apostles felt like he needed to include himself in the warning, don't, don't you refuse him when he speaks. Because it is so easily done, church. It is so easily done, it, it'll happen in a service like this. Someone right here will feel right now God speaking to his or her heart, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, oh, that's what they do in church. They play on your emotions. This is just me. You'll be okay. Go to Swiss Chalet. This will all go away. And, and, and they're refusing him who speaks. And our writer says, don't do that. Don't do that. There's a young person, a young adult, and, you're, and you're, you're in a sexual relationship that just is not right. And you're hearing me, and it troubles you in your heart, and you're saying to yourself, you know what? All my friends are. And you can silence that voice so effectively. And our writer says, don't you refuse that voice. That's God. Don't refuse him. Don't refuse him. There's people here and you make good money, lots of money. And the kingdom of God gets precious little of it. And you've, you've told yourself a thousand times, well, I got kids in university and I got three cars and I got this and I got that. Gee, if I give all that, I'm, there's not going to be anything left for my retirement and blah, 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 blah. And you think you've excused it all away and a writer says, don't do that. You're refusing him speaking. It happens all over the place. I'm done. Let's pray.